As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, Williamson's World Cup is over. The Gunners fire back and sweet Caroline. Hi, I'm Lindsay Hooper and with me today it's the Athletic Charlotte Harper. Hello to you, Charlotte. Hello, Lindsay. Have you had a good week? A really good week. A really good weekend. Chelsea Barca. What more could you want? I know, we're in the middle of the semi-final ties. What a time to be alive when everything's still in jeopardy. No one's out, no one's in. I love it. We've also got Laia Saveo, who's speaking to us from Spain. Laia, so good to have you on. And we'll be talking all things Barcelona with you later. Have you had a good week? Yeah, of course. Like in Spain, in Barcelona specifically, yesterday was like a festive day because it's San Jordi, a day where uh, people just... uh, give books to other other people and roses and it was funny and obviously with the winning of the of Barca against Chelsea it was better. I got schooled about this yesterday by some Manchester City players. I think it was Kasparai who was leaving the dressing room and had a rose and then there was another rose right behind. I was like, what's with the roses? I didn't realise this, liar, but I also have to reveal that yesterday, St George's Day, was also my birthday. So I thought, oh, maybe I, maybe I might get a rose. I didn't get a rose. So congratulations, first of all, for your <laughs> birthday. And uh, you. yeah, it's like uh, it's like a legend here in in in, in Catalonia, uh, where I mean, it's like a a story that uh, you told kids that uh, there was like a, a princess like many centuries ago that was kidnapped by a dragon, and then a soldier went to the castle and killed the dragon and then uh, she took off the princess and they f- fell in love like a Disney movie. <laughs> it's a Disney something, movie. Something like this and then uh, f- from the blood of the dragon they grow up like roses so that's why people is just giving roses to other people. 
Well, I'm going to be trying to get a rose next year from somebody (laughs) in that case. I imagine as well for the two of you, Charlotte and Lyre, I know you've met before, but you must have exchanged details ahead of the Barcelona second leg, haven't you? We were. I was messaging Lyre this morning. So we're going to meet up for coffee in Barcelona. Champions League plans. We'll have a chat this afternoon of how we're going to cover it, which will be really exciting. And yeah, a bit of cross-cultural Spain and English athletic combo. Excellent. I'm glad I got you both on whilst you're still friends. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This week, though, we do have to start back in England with Leah Williamson. So we're inside. Yeah, Leah Williamson down for Arsenal. And that does not look good. They cannot afford to lose another huge player. And you see the reaction there straight away from Leah Williamson. This does not look good for the England skipper. Yeah, it's the news that none of us wanted. Uh, Leah Williamson doing her ACL, meaning she's out of the World Cup. So gutted for her. So gutted for the Lionesses, the fans, for Arsenal. And of course, it is the Lionesses losing their captain ahead of a World Cup. Uh, We are going to talk the science part about this later with a consultant knee surgeon, Andy Williams. He's operated on five of the Euro winning Lionesses squad, including Chloe Kelly, who scored the winner in the Euros, but also Aoife Mannion as well at Manchester United. So from a footballing perspective first, Charlotte and Lyre, I'm going to get your opinions. It is a huge blow. England have lost a household name, potentially the poster girl of the World Cup, I would even go as far as to say. There is an article as well, Charlotte, on the Athletic website for anyone who wants to get up to speed with what happened and how the injury came about. It's a huge blow, isn't it? What what on earth do we do? Crack on. That's all you can do, really. I, I know Chloe Morgan, my editor, and I were in the office and when the news came, you just felt quite empty and deflated, really just because Leah Williamson is not only an instrumental player on the pitch and off the pitch, but she's extremely well-liked among the squad and a great personality as well. And and for all the credits that Serena Wiegmann and her coaching staff have received, you have to remember that Leah Williamson is the link between the players and the coaches. And for England to have had such success in the Euros, she played a huge part of that. The two big questions that have come as a result are to do with the captaincy, who will captain England now, and also the centre-back issue. Who will be the centre-back partnership now? So, Charlotte, let's start with the the captaincy issue, because we don't know whether Millie Bright is going to make it either. This actually knocks on with the centre-back issue too. So, who do you see being England captain? at the moment. Let's take it that Millie Bright isn't part of it because she's not part of it at the moment. Isn't? Wow. Well, she isn't, isn't she? She hasn't, she hasn't been playing. She's not available. At no, the she hasn't. Okay. With, without Millie Bright, uh, you have uh, Lucy Bronze as a potential contender. I'd say she would be my first choice. Uh, and then in the mix, someone like Mary Epps from the back, I would be surprised if that was the case. Alex Greenwood? Uh, Alex Greenwood, potentially. Uh, But uh, yeah, for me, first choice absolutely would be Lucy Bronze if Millie Bright is out of the picture. But Emma Hayes gave us an update on Bright saying that uh, she would be out for weeks. Now, (laughs) that's a very careful 
use of words because somebody could be out for 12 weeks, which is three months. But I interpreted that as weeks, not months. And so given that Millie Bright is vice captain, uh, I'd expect her to step up to the plate as wearing the armband for England uh, when fit. We will keep everything crossed that that does happen. So if she is available, who's partnering her in defence? Is it going to be a case of moving Alex Greenwood into the central defence role, maybe putting Jess Carter in her place? We've seen that trialled already by Serena Wiegmann. Or is it a completely different option? I think first choice centre-back pairing would be Brighton-Greenwood and somebody would have to fill in at left-back. My biggest concern, though, because we have depth at centre-back, it's not as if we're not short of central defenders, but my biggest concern is actually cover for that central defensive midfield role. So what happens if, and I'd hate this to happen, if, if Kira Walsh wasn't available? The plan B was that Williamson would step up into midfield. So I think that's the biggest concern for Wiegmann is that we're lacking depth in that number six central defensive midfield role. Just when Rachel Daly thinks, I'm now a recognised striker, do you think she could be called back into a left-back role? She could. It's an option. And that's why Daly is so attractive as a player, because she's versatile as a number nine or as a left-back. But then you have to think, okay, well, you're going to shuffle the pack. Would Wiegmann go back on that? I then answer, well, if Daly is an option at left back, then do you recall someone like Bethany England? Mm. I think, Charlotte, we've got to talk Steph Horton. Um, I was at Manchester City against West Ham and not only did she score on her birthday, which we share a birthday, she also has that leadership quality. She's been playing more regular football. She has never been completely ruled out by Serena Wiegmann, although the noises haven't been all that positive. But do we see that that could completely change now in light of this? It's a really interesting case. I don't think Wiegmann will recall Horton. I think the fact that she didn't call her up when uh, Greenwood and Bright were out is telling. She said in her press conference that uh, she was happy with the quality in the squad at centre-back position. And Serena Wiegmann is not a sentimental person. She will be not looking at the name, not looking at what it means, not looking at Steph Horton's incredible England journey and all that she's had to endure to get back to where she was after her injury. Some are calling, saying that Horton has that experience. There is enough experience within the squad. But it will be really interesting, this narrative of how Serena Wiegmann manages that and whether even she considers it. Could she be being stubborn in another way, though, in a, w- in a way that goes against Neff? There's not having sentimentality and then there's ignoring the obvious when it comes to experience. You know, for instance, I think from my point of view, if it was a choice between Lotta Woob and Moy and Steph Horton, I know which one I would be going for. Obviously, in Serena, we trust. But what I'm trying to get at is, is there a bigger issue at play when it comes to voices in the dressing room? It could upset bringing a strong character back in, who's obviously been so central to everything prior to the last major tournament. Is that playing a part? Is that why it's not happening? Because I don't think it's even to do with sentimentality anymore. I think that was lost a long time ago. Steph Horton's been playing very well for City. And Serena Wiegmann has said that she will always kind of pick on performance. 
So she has to measure up whether Horton is as good as her other centre-backs available. Experience, you can't replicate that. It depends which way Wiegmann wants to go, whether it's a calm head and Horton has that international major tournament experience. She knows what it's like at a World Cup. Or she sticks with her pack and doesn't give Steph Horton a look in. Mm -hmm. Laia, you will know about ACL injuries because the best player in Spain, the best player in the world, Alexia Pateas, did her ACL. Has there been more research on that area in Spain as a result since? And is there anything you can tell us that might help? Uh, research uh, is being done on this in, in Spain. In fact, uh, last, uh, on last September, there was a congress in Barcelona about that. Uh, now there are not that, that many players who give up football because of this injury, something that uh, was um, very common years ago, I would say. Since women's football has become more professional in Spain, I think uh, much more consideration is being given to the implications of for example, menstru menstruation in, in sport, uh, something that affects in that kind of uh, injuries. Uh, it might seem very logical, but a few years ago, when women's football was very neglected in Spain, nobody took it into account. And I think uh, now it's starting to, to, to happen. Well, let's dive into the medical side then of the injury that's caused Leah Williamson to be missing for, for this World Cup. Earlier on, I caught up with consultant knee surgeon Andy Williams from Fortis Clinic. And Andy has done the ACL surgeries for Chloe Kelly, Aoife Mannion, works with Chelsea and Manchester City as well. Uh, this is what he had to say. Andy, we really appreciate you giving us some of your time, especially considering the topic that is ACL injuries at the moment. I imagine that your phone has been going off the hook. <laughs> well, that's right. it's no problem at all. It's a pleasure because it obviously is a very topical thing with this cluster of injuries of really uh, high pr prominence, female players in particular. And uh, it seems to be an incredible period of a few months where some really big name people have gone down with it. So I'm not surprised you asked uh, to interview me. There has been a lot of focus in this area, rightly so, because of the amount of ACLs that we've seen occurring in the women's game, especially. Do you think there is a reason behind the amount that we're seeing in the women's game that can be explained not just physiologically? I mean, that's the area that you would be coming at it. But is is there anything else that you see that's glaringly obvious that's different to when men do their ACLs? I mean, I think there's a cluster of phenomena that are coming all together for these women to have been so successful they can't have knees that want to blow their ACLs it, amongst the children unfortunately there are a group who are just destined to rupture their ACL and they never make it because if they blow their ACL in their early early mid-teens they miss too much football and never keep up with their peers so most of most athletes get to 21 at least I would say are put together right so so what is it women do have a significantly higher risk of ACL rupture than men and so that's related to their sex. And that risk is probably seven times greater. So it's quite, it's immense, really. There are lots of aspects that might explain that, such as the angle of the femur on the tibia. Uh, women tend to be a little bit less bow-legged than most of the male players. And if you look at a, a male team, most of those players when they're being photographed have got bowed legs. With women, they tend to have straighter or occasionally not need alignment. And that's a risk factor. Uh, there's also... So that possibility that the uh, within the middle of the knee joint at the end of the femur that has almost like a 
cavity a notch in it that notch might be smaller and that's where the acl lives and if that notch is smaller it means there's less room for excursion of the ligament and therefore it's more likely to get chopped by the the femur moving on to it there are other aspects such as strength and sort of weight power ratio etc and there's even been a linkage to menstrual cycle and that does seem to be an issue whether it's direct or whether it's indirect it's very hard to know but the other problem is that the level of play has gone up and up and up, which is obviously fantastic in terms of making women's football attractive to watch and hopefully attracting the TV money that one day will give parity to the women compared to the men who seem to always have the best of the best. Um, so firstly, the, the level of competition is going up, plus the intensity of play is going up and the amount of play. And so players often are fatigued uh, because of that stress on them to get out and play and the other aspect i think which is getting less of a problem and i certainly used to notice it is that the female players could often join professional football late based purely on their skill levels and that what they weren't some of them at least they weren't well put together athletes and just being skillful was good enough to get a contract whereas the way that men's football is run the boys with talent are usually picked out by the time they're 10 years of age and they've received the best training and they become very good athletes very early and the athleticism protects them from injury so there's a whole bunch of things i think that comes to the fore really the truth is you can just be unlucky and have a, a spree of injuries i remember uh, looking after chelsea football club since 1999 at least at the men's team and there were no acl ruptures in the first team squad for 10 years and then there were three in the season and obviously there was a lot of investigation as to why, but it probably was just bad luck because there were no more over the next few years. So it's possible we're just seeing an unusual number of cluster together. But uh, I think there are factors that are making it more likely. And as w women's football starts to mimic the male game more and more, there's more stress on the knee and therefore there's more risk of rupture. Is there anything in the healing process as well? I spoke about Ethan Mannion earlier, who mm. you've dealt with, and she's done it more than once. We've got other mm. players in WSL. Um, I'm thinking of some at Spurs at the moment as well that are exactly the same, and they've repeatedly done that ACL injury. Mm. Is it something to do with the healing process that is different that makes that more common in women as well? So I hasten to add that I didn't do Ethan's first one. <laughs> I did the uh, the second one. Mm -hmm. um, there are some very practical things. The the tissue we use for an ACL, we take a graft, so-called, and for professional football or elite football, my strong preference is taking it from the front of the knee, so-called patellar tendon graft. Uh, but they have women have smaller patellar tendons as a, as a physical issue. Plus, I mentioned earlier on, they, they often join the athlete, athlete level later. And so when they were growing, they don't have the stresses that cause a reaction from the body to produce bigger stronger tissues so there is a practical issue in that everything's smaller and because they have an increased risk of rupture and acl in the first place they have an increased risk afterwards and so over the years people like myself have fine-tuned the technique by choosing the right graft the patella tendon i believe and by adding an operation on the outer side of the knee that uh, also helps protect the acl so something called a tenodesis it's actually an old-fashioned operation that was thought not to be necessary, but our data now is really strong. It's not just mine, but other surgeons around the world have shown by adding a tenodesis, it hugely reduces the risk of re-rupture. It's taken me down from about 7% to 2%. So there are things that can be done, but of course I do that for the men as well. So it's not uh, female-specific, but it, female 
ACL reconstruction is at more risk of failure. And therefore, surgeons need to be really, really wary that they address every single issue in the knee, such as meniscus tears, as well as the ACL. If you were doing your own research right now into this, where would you focus it first? With regard to women's or just overall football? Let's go women's. Well, the first thing to do is is get data. And there's a lot of data on men's sport and there are various reasons for that. Uh, but women's data is really weak. And when I've done my research to follow up what happened to players after injury, it's all on the internet for the men. You you know, you can find what happened to a 16-year-old at a certain club, how long they last, when do they get back, etc. But the women just vanish. And so, first of all, I think a very simple thing is to really concentrate on getting good data. And I'm, I'm sure the FA have already started to address that. I've not seen that come through yet, but I'm sure records are improving. As, as the um, investment in women's football increases, people will be interested in data. So therefore, I think it will come uh, naturally. But we need to get a move on, you know. No yeah. question. So that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. I think the there's been already a lot of study on the anatomy of the knee, and I'm not sure that we'll learn much more. I think we need to learn a lot more about strength and how neuromuscular control will protect the knee and how the female athlete is somehow uh, got a second best hand when it comes to neuromuscular control. So, for example, a a risk of ACL rupture or re-rupture if they've had surgery in any athlete is, is bad mechanics when they land. So, women will tend to drop their knees inwards and effectively describe a knock knee position. And that is certainly a risk factor in the men as well. But in women, it's much more common. So if we can work out how to counter that and train female athletes to to deal with that as a second nature without thinking about it, it may protect them. But one thing I've, I've noticed with, you know, if you look at that European champions team, the women are real athletes. I mean, over a 10, 20 year period, it, they look different. And, and interestingly, in terms of their pelvic alignment, their lower limb alignment, I think they're looking more male. And maybe that's natural selection. And maybe the girls who have got a more male shape to the pelvis or lower limbs have an advantage over the, the girls they grew up with who don't. And the ones who are, don't have the more male look to their limbs, they get weeded out because unfortunately, like natural selection, they do blow their ACLs and have other injuries and they just never make it. But it did strike me that the shape of the the petition of the hips, the way the players move now in the female game is, I think, increasingly more male. And maybe there's an inherent uh, favour towards that. Mm, That's a really interesting observation. Let's finish off by just talking about the fact that we're waiting for research. It's Mm. something that's been mentioned with everyone that I've spoken to is that, you know, more is needed. It's going to have to be done. And that means that it's going to have to take time. So in that interim period, Andy, what would you recommend to players, to clubs, to anyone at grassroots level to do to try and reduce the risk of getting an ACL? I think the simple things are avoiding overload and fatigue. You know, if you play, if you play when your muscles fired up and ready to go, you're much less likely to get injured. And so there are a number of programs. Uh, FIFA, I've got something called the Eleven Plus. There's a program called the PEP PEP program from the states, and a lot of that is about proper warm up, getting the muscles engaged so that you're not caught cold and have a twisting injury you don't deal with. So that's a that's on match day or training day to have a proper warm up, but also to spend 
perhaps more time relatively in the gym, getting strong, doing drills that will really heighten a, a player's ability to play safely, shock absorb safely and remain stable rather than simply using football to become a good footballer. I know in, you know, pr previously people didn't invest the time and effort because, you know, I'm sorry to say, but it often boils down to money and the, the male players are often viewed as, you know, very major financial assets. And so guess what? They get protected. Whereas the girls are often an oversight or just a second best. And it's really unfair. And, and arguably they need more of it than the male, their male counterparts. So I think the strength and conditioning and maintenance of those of, of strength and conditioning plus proper warming up is a very simple thing to start. And I think there's decent evidence that prevention programs do work. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to get that insight and we'll be keeping an eye on all of the work that you're doing as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, great pleasure. Thank you. That was me speaking to Andy Williams from Fortis Clinic. There's lots of ACL coverage on the Athletic website as well. Now, though, we move on to the Champions League, where Arsenal also place. miss Williamson. Here's Marnham. With the Moy. That's a lovely pass for Palava. Black Stenius waiting and will put it in. Some turnaround this from Arsenal. Even without Williamson, Arsenal managed to fight back from two goals down to claim a two-all draw against Wolfsburg in the first leg of the Champions League semi-finals at the Volkswagen Arena. Uh, Michael Cox is joining us from a German airport because he was at this one. Did you see that coming, first of all? Two-nil down. I think many had written Arsenal off. Yeah, I suppose I have mixed emotions in response to that question. One, two-nil down, I think Arsenal were you know, in danger of kind of going out before the return leg. Um, and I didn't really see that they were going to mount a comeback at that point. That said, I actually thought their tactical plan had worked quite well at 0-0. The first goal, I think, was, was a really well-worked move from Wolfsburg. The second one, obviously, a bit of a freak goal. But I didn't think Arsenal were playing disastrously overall. And I think, in a way, I mean, everything about Jonas Eidevold's plans were, were obviously dictated by the injury absences. But maybe the fact that he didn't really have anything else he could do actually helped Arsenal because they just continued with plan A. And I think eventually they got a foothold in the game. The goal before halftime was crucial. And the second half, I think they actually played as if 2-1 wasn't going to be a bad result for them. I think if, if they'd left it at that, maybe they'd be confident at the Emirates they, they would have won by uh, a goal or, or two goals as they did in the previous game against Bayern. And so to win the second half 1-0, if you like, and, and make it all square, I think... You know, given the circumstances of injuries and going 2-0 down is an absolutely brilliant result for Arsenal. I think Wolfsburg are a good side. I think they'll probably be better next week. I think they were probably surprised by Arsenal using a back five. And if that happens next time, I don't think, uh, you know, I think Wolfsburg will have, have planned for that. You mentioned the back five. Was that how Jonas Eideval plugged the Leah Williamson gap with this one? In a way, I, I think he almost worked backwards. You know, he just, chose 11 players who I think he trusts and have the experience to play at this level and kind of worked out the best formation for them to play in. I'm not sure he would have played that way had Williamson or indeed Kim Little been fit. But yeah, it was needs must. I mean, you look at the bench, Arsenal didn't really have much experience at all aside from in the goalkeeping department and you don't, you know, not going to call on them from the bench. So yeah, I don't think it was 
how he would have wanted to play. But I think they made it work. Um, they made it work with, I think, a really good effort from Stinner Blackstenius, who obviously is the centre forward, but did a really good job dropping back into midfield and picking up uh, Lena Oberdorf. That meant Arsenal weren't outnumbered in that zone. And they had a few shaky moments, I thought, with diagonal balls into the zone behind Maritz on the right. And Lotta Wobber Moy, I thought, struggled a little bit with the aerial balls. But Jen Beattie was the, obviously the big beneficiary of it, and she was just fantastic at the back. Uh, really good aerially and I think just provided a kind of physical quality as well I mean I watched this game back or this game from last year uh, it was the quarterfinal last year um, and Arsenal lost 2-0 in Wolfsburg and I thought Arsenal got physically bullied a little bit you know Wolfsburg quite a wily experienced side but you know Beatty I think set the tone for just a real kind of commanding performance at the back and I think all over the pitch actually Arsenal cope really really well with I think quite a physical Wolfsburg side It's not been a good week for Wolfsburg with injuries either. I mean, if we think that they've been stacking up for Arsenal, um, Alexandra Pop out injured for Wolfsburg, missed the Euro final, of course, back in the summer and a huge miss for for them. Uh, The Champions League top scorer, Eva Pior, was was at it again. What did she offer that's different to Pop? Because a lot of us that have watched Germany over the years will know exactly what Pop offers, but might not be as aware of what Pior offers. Yeah, I guess a similar kind of player, really. I think a, a good all-round number nine, maybe a little bit old-fashioned in that, you know, very much a penalty box uh, striker and, and took the first goal very well. But I mean, sadly, I mean, Pop's had so many injury problems over the years that I do think Wolfsburg are almost accustomed to playing without her. Obviously a big miss, but I don't think it changed too much about their uh, their tactical approach. Whereas I think for Arsenal, obviously, the not just Williamson's absence, but, but Kim Little as well, just means they don't have a a third central midfielder, really. They just had to completely change the system. So, um, yeah, injury absences for both sides. But I do think Arsenal's were a little bit more demanding and and difficult for them in a tactical sense. You've already alluded to the fact that there's a plan A for Arsenal and there's plan A only, <laughs> especially with the, with the personnel they've got available. Uh, what would you do, though, tactically, Michael? Would you change things for this second leg? And I'm thinking from both teams, actually, you know, from a Wolfsburg perspective, what can they target now with Arsenal, with this depleted squad? Yeah, I can't see Arsenal doing too much different. Like you say, they just don't have too many options. I think the only one that Jonas Ardevel might consider is just bringing in uh, Laura Wienreuther, I thought she did very well after she came on uh, for the last 20 minutes. Um, Wolfsburg, I think, actually had the right approach. Lots of diagonal balls uh, in behind worked really well. Um, Maybe we'll see more of that next week. But, um, yeah, I I do think the fact that Arsenal have kind of shown their hand gives Wolfsburg a slight advantage just because I can't see Arsenal playing any different. And I think Wolfsburg will probably spend a week on the training ground just working how to play against a a back three or a back five, whatever you want to call it, because I don't think they would have been expecting that. Which way do you think it's going to go, Michael, at the Emirates? <laughs> uh, that's a tough question. I'd, I'd say Arsenal narrowly favourites. I think home advantage is quite big at the moment, I think, because a lot of these sides still just aren't used to going away from home and playing in front of massive crowds. And ticket sales at the Emirates sound really fantastic. And I think it's going to be quite difficult for Wolfsburg to go out there and attack. So I just about have Arsenal favourites. Of course, could go to extra time. Home advantage there as well. So, yeah, it's really tight. But I think Arsenal just about in the driving seat. If they're just about in the driving seat, Chelsea are in the back seat, I think is how we describe it, going into their second leg. Let's move on to Chelsea. 
ya el Barça, es Jaycee tocando banda derecha, Hansen, la Noruega que ya avanza metros, ahí le gusta Hansen, qué disparo, qué golazo. Well, who knew that the game between Chelsea and Barcelona would be settled in the fourth minute? It was, though, with a spectacular strike, a long-range effort from Barcelona's Caroline Graham Hansen. Uh, loved that finish from her. Chelsea able to see this one out, Michael, and just keeping it at 1-0. So they're certainly not out of it altogether. But, of course, that was their home leg. That was at Stamford Bridge. They've now got to go away. Do you think that this is going to be too much for them to try and overcome? Personally, I think it'd be really tough. I actually think Chelsea did quite well defensively. They, in a way, did what Arsenal did. Uh, they played a back five. I think they compensated for quality in certain positions with just numbers. I was quite worried, really, for Marin Milda and Magda Eriksson, who I don't think has been anywhere near her best this season. But I thought they coped quite well defensively. Uh, I think the frustration is just being undone, obviously, by such a, a good individual goal, you know, a goal that was quite difficult to stop. And personally, I thought Barcelona just went into their shell at 1-0 up. To me, they seemed entirely happy with 1-0, delighted to go back to the Camp Nou with uh, with the advantage and, and they'll be very confident they won't be beaten in the second leg. But I must say, I think there's a big gulf between these sides and I think if Barcelona had turned it on and played at their best, I think they could have won by a couple of goals, to be honest. Is that how you saw it, Laia? Did you think that Barcelona would be happy with that? Yeah, of course. I mean, last uh, week we were talking about it and I was saying that uh, Barcelona, since the last final of the Champions League, uh, maybe here we are a bit pessimistic because of the many injuries that, that the, the team has had. I think people here didn't see like Barca winning the Champions League at the beginning of the season, something that I think it's beginning to change after the, the match against Chelsea. People was more aware that maybe Chelsea will be more uh, efficient like in the defensive part than maybe other teams in in Spain. So uh, people here is very happy about it because they know that it's something uh, hard to achieve uh, in Stamford Bridge. And obviously because like the second leg is at, at Camp Nou, uh, something that to me makes uh, Barcelona the favourite. Charlotte, you were there as well, weren't you? And I thought it probably was another case. You know, Michael talked about the back five that Arsenal played with and Chelsea had a back five here. Did you always think they were going to do that and set up that way? I didn't. And neither did Kira Walsh. <laughs> I spoke to her after the game and she was surprised that they went 5-3-2. She said that she's played against them when she played for City and knew that they could do that. And Barcelona took a bit of adjusting, especially in that midfield area, to really adapt to Chelsea's unexpected tactical shift. But I think Chelsea really coped with that midfield area well, having two and then a three. So Kern right in up front and then the three in midfield actually prevented Barcelona going down the middle and using Bon Matty and Walsh as effectively as they wanted to. It was Patry. Uh, who was dictating the tempo for Barcelona. But Chelsea were very resolute and a, a great performance from Mara Mielda. Uh, Magdalena Eriksson really stepped up to the mark as well. But yeah, what a goal for Caroline Graham Hansen. Surely we have to talk about that. Amy Rujkai, reporter at Goal, pointed out she's never been on the long list for the Ballon d'Or, which is just nuts. That is that is insane. It's really insane because she's been at the top of her game for a very long time. And we talk about world class and we always talk about consistency. 
and she's been up there. So it, it is incredible. Uh, Michael, did you feel that Barcelona were able to nullify Sam Kerr? I think you've got a lot of other passengers around you now. It's starting to swell that airport, I can tell. Did you think they managed to cope with Sam Kerr or was she just not fed um, and didn't get the service? The service thing was a bit of an issue. Um, Emma Hayes specifically said that when Chelsea tried to find her, she said they missed out one pass. It was almost like they just hoofed the ball towards her from defence rather than trying to you know, feed through the midfield and play a little bit more of an intelligent pass. I think they actually did okay. I mean, Kerr and Reuton haven't really seen Reuton play that much up front, but they had that uh, offside goal. I think it was clearly offside, but that showed they had the right idea. They had another chance, I think, later in the first half. So, yeah, it was, it was a little bit timid from Chelsea. They weren't under the cosh for as long as I thought, but when they did have the ball, they weren't really putting Barca under sustained spells of pressure. And I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to know what Charlotte thought of this because I was at the game, I wasn't working, I was just in the stands. And I was just surprised how kind of flat the occasion was. It, it didn't feel like a Champions League semi-final. And it didn't feel, to me, if I was a Barcelona player, I'm not sure it would have felt that intimidating. I mean, there were a decent number of people there. But to me, it doesn't feel like Stamford Bridge is as home to Chelsea women as maybe the new Camp is to Barcelona or even the Emirates is to Arsenal. It still feels, I mean, to me, it felt like a bit of a, a neutral stadium, to be honest. I think, yeah, Arsenal have really built their fan base and, and captured those new fans from the Euros euphoria and Barcelona as well with the history of their club. But yeah, 27,000 at the bridge. Again, it was a good attendance, but we're expecting more considering how far women's football has come just even in the last year. And I'll bring in Laia. I don't really buy this. Barcelona saying that they don't they struggle away from home. I mean, they're not losing drastically, but we're expecting them to put three or four past teams and then one nil against Roma, one nil against Chelsea. And they say it's about mentality, concentration and again coming up against supporters who are not on their side, but it didn't feel like a hostile crowd. I understand that the new Camp is their fortress and they have so much energy from their fans that it gives them a boost, but I wouldn't say going to the bridge was a really tricky environment to play in front. It felt quite nice for them. Yeah, I think it's not about being weaker away from home. It's about uh, how they felt at home. So I think it's the main difference because it's true, like I said la, la, last week, that maybe the weakness of, of Barcelona is their mentality uh, because they are used to, to win in, in Spain. So when they are in, tr in troubles in a game or they are, str they are struggling to to win a game uh, last year, they uh, look fragile, and you could see that in the in the final of the Champions League. And it's something I think they have uh, started to to change this season. They are working about getting better at, at this at this point, and you could see in uh, a lot of games. But yeah, I think they feel so strong at, at home, and maybe people expect that to happen also away from home. But it's true that maybe in Stamford Bridge. At some point, I agree with Michael that if you hear like the sound of the stadium, it seemed like an, a neutral stadium because like the Barca supporters were just singing uh, so loud. And yeah, I don't think you can just say that um, they struggled because they were an, an, in a an hostile stadium. So I think it just that Chelsea did well in a defensive way and they are not used uh, to that in Spain. And that's it. I mean... 
Chelsea, it's so good uh, at the defense, and it's the only the only thing that happened. Also in Rome, I think. And will Pateas play the second leg? Do you think? I think it depends. I mean, uh, she has good feeling uh, about his injury. I, uh, I know that she wants to co- to come back because she's an obsessed of, of football and she wants to to play every game uh, she can and be the best uh, every time. But uh, Jonathan Giraldez would be just cautious with with it because obviously uh, has been nine months since uh, Putellas played for the for the last time. So. I think if things go well and Barca uh, manage to f- finish the game uh, early, maybe Putellas could have some minutes at the end of the of the match. But only I think if Barcelona manage to to have like some advantage in the game. But obviously, I mean, it's the the, the perfect environment for Putellas uh, come back uh, with all his supporters there just to give them give her like a big. Uh, ovation. So I think if it's possible, uh, that, that would, would happen. Charlotte, Michael, do either of you see Chelsea overcoming this 1-0 deficit and turning it around in Spain? I think it's highly unlikely. Barcelona are favourites for me. The problem is, is that Barcelona are so good at keeping the ball. And the only way that you make them feel uncomfortable is really taking the game to them and applying pressure. And I wonder if Lauren James will start because if, if Barcelona go behind or feel slightly rattled in, in the first 15, 20 minutes, that's when you can get underneath their skin and it's out of their comfort zone. But then that exposes Chelsea if you if you open the game up. The game plan has always been for Chelsea is to defend resolutely and hit them on the counter with long balls to kind of Sam Kerr as, as the target player. I'd be interested to see what Michael thinks about whether Hayes will change her tactics at all. Yeah, I expect she will. I I think Lauren James will probably come in to be a third attacker, if you like, regardless of what system it is. I think her reading and Kerr is pretty intimidating for any defence. I think it's a massively uphill task for Chelsea. I think they probably need some kind of freak event. I mean, if there's an early red card or something for Barcelona, you never know what can happen. But I just feel like Chelsea are going to be under uh, such sustained pressure that it's going to be difficult for them. I think they probably needed to to get their noses in front and go to Spain with something to protect. But winning away at the new Camp, I think, is uh, probably beyond them. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Outside of the Champions League, we can't forget the WSL relegation and title race. Both still up for grabs. Manchester United beat Arsenal 1-0 on Wednesday. That means they stay top. Down at the bottom, Brighton also beat Everton, meaning they moved off the bottom of the table. Uh, Leicester are now bottom with a game in hand on Reading, but it is against Chelsea that game. Is anyone rethinking their predictions that we made given some of these results that are coming in? And it was impossible in the first place. I know for you, Lyre, we haven't put you on the spot yet, but for Michael and Charlotte, I have done. But because it's so open, it's difficult at both ends to work out what's going to happen. I've always said that I thought Reading would be in trouble. Um, Not necessarily that they would go down, but I did think that they'd be right in it till the final day. And then towards the top, I've never really seen past Chelsea. Has anyone got anything to add here? Well, I am just thinking about my friendly bet with Chloe Morgan, Mm. (laughs) who uh, I said Chelsea. I'm still backing Chelsea. Two games in hand. The ball's in their court, but Manchester United, yeah, they're they're ones to watch. I didn't think they would be, but there's something about them. I suppose it's whether they can see it out. So I'm still backing Chelsea, though. Okay. Well, for the very first time, because I'm going to come to you, Michael, I heard goal difference mentioned at the weekend. Manchester City scored six past West Ham, and Gareth Taylor, in his post-match interview, said, yeah, we had got goal difference in mind. Do you think it could even be that tight? Have, Have you wavered at all on your thoughts? No, I still fancy Chelsea. I didn't expect Manchester United to be up there, to be honest. But looking at goal difference, Manchester United have got a really big advantage at the moment. So there'll have to be a couple of quite hefty wins for for Chelsea, maybe, to to overturn that. Yeah, I still fancy Chelsea with the two games in hand, I think is is really important. Um, And I don't think they'll have more than one more Champions League game to think about, although I could be wrong on that. So yeah, I always fancy Chelsea to just get the job done, even uh, even if they're not at their best, they usually get results. If anyone is backing Manchester City to come from behind, the goal difference for them and United. So United have got 38 and Man City plus 23. So a significant difference still, but you never know. Um, Villa, we've always thought that they would have a say in where the title goes. Well, next weekend, United travel to Aston Villa. That could be a key game. We'd love to know your thoughts. Which games are you keeping an eye on next weekend? Where do you think the title will go? And who do you think will be relegated? Use the hashtag AthleticWFP. Big congratulations to Bristol City, who have been promoted to WSL for next season. Soon it's going to be party time as well for Barcelona as well. They've won all their league games so far. They should win the league on Sunday, shouldn't they, Laia? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's... uh, I think, like, the main difference between this Barca, maybe Barca from last season, is that they can uh, win with without the starting team. I mean, they have, I think, a really rich bank. So, um, yeah, I think it would be, like, a really good game to, to, to win the league. Is there such thing as it being too easy? You know, when you look at a squad's development, often we think with Barcelona, the real test for them, they come in Champions League. And is there a disadvantage to not having that test domestically? Yeah, it's something Alexia said after the final against Lyon last, last season, because having no competition in La Liga and having such a difference between the first, uh, between the leader and the, and the second one, it's a massive difference. So it's something that it's not going in advantage for, for Barcelona. 
And at sometimes it can be quite boring because Barcelona is just winning every game for, for five goals in advantage. So it's something that I think it's uh, affecting the, the players because the only league that they are taking in account or that they are feeling that they are competing, competing with uh, uh, champions. For Michael, your name hasn't been called over the tannoy yet, which means your flight has not departed. <laughs> but we are departing ourselves. Uh, time is up for this week's Athletic Women's Football podcast. Uh, thank you to Charlotte, Michael and Lyat. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank, thank you, you too. Lindsay. And as always, thank you to Sophie, our producer, for putting this together and to you at home for listening. Do join the chat using the hashtag AthleticWFP or you can go and use the handles at The Athletic FC and at Offside Rule Pod. Until next week, bye-bye. The Athletic.